0: This is Pain Reframed. Well, welcome to another edition of Pain Reframed. Today, we are going to be talking with Dr. Judith Grisell. Dr. Grisell recently published an outstanding book called Never Enough, The Neuroscience and Experience of Addiction. Liz and I both agree that Dr. Grisell's book, Is on our short list of the most important information out there regarding addiction science. In addition to breaking down the neuroscience in a truly approachable way, Dr. Griselle's personal story of addiction and her thoughts on the psychosocial aspects of addiction make this book particularly powerful. We sure hope you enjoy our conversation with Dr. Griselle. Okay, so Dr. Judy Griselle, thank you so much for being here with us. Why don't you give our listeners a little Introduction and tell us uh, where you are at now and what you do on a day-in and day-out basis.
1: Hi, Adam and Liz. I'm a professor of psychology and neuroscience at Bucknell University, which is in central Pennsylvania in Lewisburg. I teach undergraduates there for the most part, introduce them to how the brain works and how drugs work on the brain and clinical neuroscience and neuroethics. I'm also a basic scientist who studies mice and genetics to try to understand what's different about the brains of people who go on to become addicts before they ever pick up a drug. So I'm a pharmacologist and behavior geneticist. In my spare time, I ride bikes and garden with my family, things like that, but that's me.
0: Excellent. So We both read your book, which is entitled, for our listeners, Never Enough, the Neuroscience and Experience of Addiction. We were both really captivated by it and uh, thought it was extremely informative and would really help our listeners engage in a great conversation with you. So one of the reasons this book is so powerful is because you spend so much time discussing your own story and your own journey and experiences with addiction. And you describe in the book... That at first, these substances provided a great deal of peace, fun, excitement, even entertainment. But then you started to get to the point where you described lying on a dorm room bunk feeling quite despaired, that you started to feel like it was just an endless escape from awareness. And I thought one very potent moment is when you described that this escape was so habitual that you even attended your own grandmother's funeral under the influence, and you described feeling absolutely nothing. You state that the opposite of addiction I have learned is not sobriety, but choice. And I thought that was pretty profound. And I wondered if you would tell us about that revelation and and how your own experiences led you to its discovery.
1: Well, that's a lot of good questions there. Like everybody, I guess, who uses recreational drugs, they start out to be quite recreational and kind of an addition to an otherwise okay life. And so things were more fun and more interesting and more exciting when I was high in some form or another. So for that reason, I went after those highs as avidly as I could for about 10 years. And I didn't notice it coming, of course, but by the end of that time, like most people, I wasn't able to get high at all. I was really... Without drugs, life was bleak and colorless and not worth living. And with them, it was just bearable. So this is the great irony. They kind of create the exact opposite state of what you're looking for. And I got there pretty quickly because I was young. I used all through my teens and I used as much as I could. I wasn't, you know, teens aren't known for their restraint. And I'm probably on the low end of that, or I was on the low end of that ability to begin with. So what ended up happening is I didn't go a day without probably a drink, some weed, and maybe something else if I could find it. And usually I could. I just wasn't accustomed to living without it. And so I can remember a few times my family funerals or Exams or you know important things, which there weren't that many of them by the end, because I was homeless and had been kicked out of schools and all of that. nobody I didn't have too many friends left. but anyway, if I had something important going on, I still wasn't able to face it without using. So I used just to feel passable or just to feel somewhat normal, and without it, I was a anxious, sad. Miserable mess.
2: That reminds me of one of the things you said in the book, something along the lines of the misery of the adapted brain is that there will never be enough, but quitting seems worse than dying. And I think that really resonated with me because I spend a lot of my professional life trying to figure out how to motivate people to quit smoking, which is one of the most common things people do that is bad for us. And I thought, wow, that's. Quitting seems worse than dying.
1: Exactly. I think that characterizes in a nutshell every addict. You can't live with it and you can't live without it. You know, it's just such a small, lonely place, really.
0: So, Judy, one of the most important lessons in your book across all of these substances, and you kind of talk about how there's no free lunch with taking drugs, is our brain's constant fight for regaining a state of homeostasis. And you talk about a B phase, that is a key in understanding craving and withdrawal. And I wonder if you could give us, our listeners, a a little bit of a synopsis on this process of homeostasis, this A and B phase, and, and then we can maybe look a little bit at opioids in particular and why opioids tend to be even more problematic with this this B phase and, and the brain's fight for homeostasis?
1: Sure. I think most people are aware of homeostasis in terms of physiology, things like body temperature or energy stores. If your energy goes too low, you get hungry. If it's high, you're full and you're kind of turned off by food. If your body temperature goes low, you shiver to generate heat. If it goes high, you sweat to lose heat. So we are kind of recognized that our body has this innate wisdom. In fact, Walter Cannon, a physiologist at Harvard about a hundred years ago, coined the term homeostasis to describe this stable state that we, you know, maintain that kind of keeps our body functioning. And what we took a little while to recognize, and probably was first recognized by Solomon and Corbett, who were two researchers at the University of Pennsylvania in the 1970s, is that our affective state or our feeling state is also maintained homeostatically. So every person has some state of sort of okayness. This is how I feel. I feel neutral. And if something great happens, we have a bump in that neutral feeling and we feel really good and excited. And then we kind of go back to neutral which is fine, just okay. And then sometimes if something bad happens, we go below that. But it's not really always recognized that this is actively maintained. This okay state is maintained by the nervous system. Maybe you can remember coming home from a vacation and feeling a little let down afterwards. Home is just not quite as great as it was, or or something scary happens and you feel a great relief afterward. So this homeostasis of feeling is important because it lets us know if something happens, something good or bad. If we don't know if good or bad things happen, we wouldn't survive. We wouldn't know to go toward advantageous stimuli or away from disadvantageous stimuli if we couldn't tell if they were good or bad. And in order to tell if they were good or bad, we have to compare them to our neutral okay state. So the nervous system is very much about maintaining that neutral affective state. And every time we take a drug, of course, we're disrupting that on purpose in the direction of feeling good, of having a rush or feeling a thrill, getting some euphoria. And so the brain counteracts that perturbation by creating the exact opposite conditions. So instead of a rush, it would be lethargy. And instead of a thrill, it would be boredom. Instead of euphoria, it would be dysphoria. And so regular users, as I described earlier, don't really get high. They just feel okay because the drug produces those actions on the brain, but the brain responds to it with this B process. So we say the A process is what the drug does to the brain, and the B process is what the brain does to what the drug does to the brain. And it's always the exact opposite of the drug. So for benzodiazepines like Xanax, they reduce your anxiety and therefore the brain produces anxiety and tension and insomnia. So now you just come out even. You can't sleep or relax without them if you take them regularly, but you don't really get the benefit of the drug. Other than the companies who are selling them to you because you're a good, <laughs> exactly you're a good consumer. Right. For opiates, you know, it's really obvious. So they have a big list of acute effects, including blocking pain and decreasing respiration and producing euphoria and producing constipation, you know, all kinds of things. And the exact opposite states are in withdrawal. So in withdrawal, you feel hypersensitive to pain you're panting you can't sleep instead of being able to sleep well and you are in pain dramatic discomfort and the nervous system does that in a number of ways but it really creates the exact opposite state as the opiates do
2: Yeah. In the book, you call those anti-opiates. Can you go into that a little bit? And I, I was particularly intrigued by the example you gave of, like, if somebody robs your house, why would our body do this to us? Why would our brain do this?
1: Yeah. So that's a good illustration of the homeostasis. So we can go in either direction. We can block pain and we can feel pain because both of those things benefit our survival. And opioids were pretty... Away, you know All the drugs like fentanyl and heroin and morphine, they work because they mimic natural opioids that our own brain produces, things like endorphins and enkephalins and endomorphins. There's a whole long list. And those chemicals evolve to help us survive. They're adaptive. If we encounter a stressful situation or a dangerous situation, or we have an injury that requires sort of fast action... We very quickly mount a response that includes a release of our opioids. And they make us feel just like heroin and fentanyl. They reduce our respiration, reduce our pain sensitivity, help us feel calm and maybe a little euphoric so that we can deal with this challenge. So, blocking pain is a great thing because if you, for instance, come home one day and you encounter someone who's robbing your house or Breaking into your car or something, and you get injured in a little scuffle, it wouldn't be good for you to stop and sit and analyze, and you know, you probably get killed. (laughs) So, it's really helpful if you can run away, not think about the pain, or fight if you're able to do that, and again, not think of the pain. But pain is absolutely critical to survival. So, we can be blind and we can be deaf and we can not smell. And if we lose all those senses, we're still able to live okay. But pain is such a fundamental part of surviving that it's very necessary that we feel it. And you, pain has two great functions, as you know. One is to help teach us what it causes injuries. And the other is, once we get an injury, if we fail that first lesson, it helps us to recuperate. So it's really important to feel, let's say, the pain from the scuffle later on when you're in a safe condition. And our brain does that not by letting the opioids slowly go away, but actually by reversing their effects. And there are lots of cellular and intercellular processes and circuit processes that are involved in that. The one that I discuss most extensively in the book are anti-opioids. So we have a long list of opioid peptides like endorphins, and we have a long list of anti-opioid peptides that do turn the endorphins off and block their effects. And we know that they also block morphine effects. So if you're using morphine or heroin every day, the more you take those drugs, the better the brain is at mounting this anti-opioid response to help keep you at your baseline state. Because... Knowing if something dangerous happens, knowing if pain stimuli, you know, you're exposed to something painful, is really critical. Is that too long? That is a lot of information in there. I probably could have.
2: No, that is perfect, and it leads me right into my next question about these anti-opiates or or any sort of B process that our brain does in order to allow us to feel pain again once we're safe. You talked about a study, I forget whose study it was, but basically the rats were trained that when they went into this specific room, they were going to have a painful procedure done.
1: Yeah, this is Eric Werdelak with Linda Watkins Yeah, at the University of Colorado in Boulder did a really great study. I thought, you know, it's probably 20 years ago or maybe longer now. One of the reasons we release opioids is if we're going to encounter something stressful or dangerous. And our brain is very good at doing that. And it will even do it if we can predict that something stressful or dangerous is coming. So Eric's rats were taught that when a blue light or something came on, they would get an electric shock to their tail. It was a mild shock. It didn't cause any tissue damage or anything, but it was bothersome and they didn't care for it. So when they saw the blue light, they learned very quickly to release opioids and to block the sensation from the shock. And we know that they released opioids to block the sensation because Eric gave them Narcan, the opiate antagonist that reverses opiate overdoses, and they felt the shock pain. So he brought them in, showed them the blue light, they were insensitive to pain, and that insensitivity was reversed with Narcan. But he also trained them to learn that a yellow light signaled that there would be no shock, that they were absolutely safe, that the danger was past and the stress was gone. One day he gave them morphine injection and then turned on the yellow light and they were suddenly perfectly sensitive to pain. Their own natural compounds had entirely obliterated a pretty hefty dose of morphine. So what he showed, and it's, it's what other people had been seeing too. So there's a pretty decent body of literature, but this is a particularly elegant study. He showed in one study that we release opioid peptides when we're needing to block pain. And we release anti-opioids when we need to feel that pain or when it's safe again. And that, of course, is the bane of every opiate addict because you can't prevent this. It's a whole set of circuitry. You know, we've evolved this really rich pharmacology to help us feel pain when we need to and block pain when we don't. And for that reason, opiates work, but then they stop working with chronic use.
2: What you said in the book was that it's good news for survival, that our pain sensitivity can be fine-tuned to the specifics of our situation, but bad news if you're seeking a free lunch from a poppy plant. (laughs) and That has kind of stuck with me because that is really true. That's, That's one whole boatload of true right there.
0: So as far as looking at this opioid crisis that we're facing in this country, and it's pretty massive, you talk a little bit in the book about kind of questioning just who is to blame for this. And you talk a little bit about how it's our unwillingness to bear our own pain, along with our failure to look upon the suffering of others with compassion. And our podcast, of course, is called Pain Reframed. And I'm wondering, how do you think we need to reframe the pain experience to help mitigate the further growth of this opioid crisis?
1: Hmm. You referred earlier to the time I was in my dorm room, you know, had been using as many drugs as I could get my hands on. And I was still really miserable. And I was miserable because I didn't want to suffer. And I was suffering. I was suffering, you know, as a result of kind of adolescent self-centeredness. But also, I think partly because I could see that there was a lot of suffering in the world, you know, among people I knew and didn't know, and it just seemed like there was, you know, it's, it was just painful to live, to be alive. And that seemed like such a terrible truth to me that I reaffirmed my decision to use as many drugs as I could. So it couldn't quite use enough, though, because of this B process. So the misery of living, you know, eventually came through. And I think I didn't have a lot of resources for facing that. I don't know what it is about society. I guess it's just too painful to look at our pain. But I think we like to act like we shouldn't feel pain. It's not a natural part of living. You know, everybody is either, you know, happy or we don't kind of want to hear or know about it. And I I guess I don't see a ton of resources for accepting pain. And I mean that in a broad sense. So, you know, if you have back pain and you can't move, well, my understanding is acceptance is part of your treatment because there's not a really lot of great options. But that was sort of my case, even though it wasn't physical pain, it was emotional or psychological pain. So what do we do with it? I think one thing, and when I started as a neuroscientist, it was because I was going to solve my addiction problem and be able to use. In other words, I was going to figure out the trick so that I could escape pain perpetually, basically, is what my goal was. And that hasn't happened. I've been at it for about 30 years. I don't think I'm any closer to that. But one of the suppositions I carried with me into that project was that the problem was in my own head that if I could understand opiates and anti-opiates, let's say, or what mediated the cocaine rush and made me so compulsive with that drug, I'd be able to sort of flip these neural switches, the neurocircuits, and not self-destruct while I escape my pain. One of the things I've learned as a basic scientist studying you know, individual brains and genetics is that answers are not all in the brain. The answers have to do a lot with our social and psychological context, and, and even, you know, things like our gut and our early environment developmentally, you know, as children. I think my lens for looking at this has gotten more and more broad as a result of the data, really, suggesting that we're not able to explain an individual's trajectory to addiction or their resistance to it based on a single gene or a single circuit or even a single, you know, no pathway in an individual brain is accounting for the situation we find ourselves in with this epidemic. So my very naive, I guess, suggestion would be that we, and I appreciate your title, that we, first of all, acknowledge that it is painful to live and that there is no escaping all of the pain. And I think what helps me personally is having people with me in that experience, not to kind of enable me, but to sort of acknowledge what's happening. I mean, I guess this is what a mother or father does to their child who falls down. Oh, you got a boo-boo and that hurts, and it'll feel better soon, or, you know, let me rub it, which is a little bit of neurobiology, but a lot of psychology, I think. It's not complicated, and it's also not easy.
0: <laughs> that's a great way to put it. Anything that's involves psychology and, and sociology, I think, I love that. It's not complicated, but it still isn't easy.
2: Yeah, I say that to patients a lot.
0: <laughs> yeah. You know, you, you talk a little bit about how, I guess if you could go back, and you're 13, I think you said you started when you tried alcohol for the first time, I believe was the first time you used any substance. Is that accurate?
1: Well, I had little sips here and there, but that was the first time I got enough alcohol in my brain to notice it, really. Yeah, when I was 13.
0: So, So you mentioned a little bit about how the whole campaign of this is your brain on drugs with kids and it shows, you know, fried eggs on on a cast iron pan that's really hot and frying away, and how this probably is not a, a helpful construct to convince kids of anything in particular that would be helpful as far as avoiding these choices. And you mentioned that ultimately when it comes to fighting a way back out of this addiction it often came to choosing life and choosing connection over other things. And so I guess as a father, and I know there are many parents out there listening, do you have any advice or any insights as to what might be a better message for people who have not really tried anything yet and why not to start?
1: Yeah, it's a really brilliant question. And I don't know that I have that much wisdom about it. I think, though, it's very obvious that the just say no, or drugs are bad, the kind of moral message that don't do drugs, they'll ruin your lives. I don't think what we're lacking is one more person saying that, even with a dramatic example. I just feel like we have been flooded with that message since I was a kid, and I'm in my 50s now. And we have more people dying of addiction than ever before. So I don't think that's the solution. and part of the reason it's not, maybe not all of the reason. Obviously, people don't do what you say, they do what they see, they follow what you do. and many people are medicating with something. So it's you know a little confusing, I think, for a kid when you say, "Now don't smoke weed, you know, as you pour your second Manhattan. I also think that the very people, who like me are prone to going to extremes with drugs are the same people personality wise who are not inclined to listen to authorities or obey rules and who are inclined to try new things and take risks. So it's kind of a perfect storm because just saying no might work for some people, but those are not probably the people that might have the problem to begin with. It really does go that way in terms of genetics and genetic studies. So I was just at a high school last week, and I I had kind of this kind of conversation. And I think that what we have to do is something new. I feel like I have a 16-year-old, and I think that she appreciates information that is not particularly emotional or manipulative. If I am able to do it, and it's hard as a parent, I, you know, I want to scare the pants off of her as my mother and father did, which didn't work one bit. But instead, I think if she could understand the B process, for instance, and all my kids know this as do my students, anything you take a drug to do, your brain produces the exact opposite effect. The more you take the drug, the better the brain is at producing the opposite effect. So if you wanted to get high, You should not use drugs with any regularity or any high frequency or high dosing because the less you're exposed, the less the brain will adapt. And it's also the case, I think, and this is sort of embedded in your question, that for children who are particularly good at learning, their behavior is changing fast and their brain is changing fast. We call that plasticity. So they're highly plastic the experiences of drugs, the learning, the adaptation that's going to occur to that, the B process, is going to be more robust and stronger and quicker to develop. So not only should you not use regularly, but you should do what you can to not use when you're young. And of course, that's the very message I ignored. But I think that I didn't know what I know now, and maybe it would have mattered. You know, when I was a kid, we also didn't wear seatbelts. We rolled around in the back of the Volkswagen, you know, on these six hour trips to Vermont or something, nobody wore a seatbelt. Nobody wore sunscreen. We didn't know that those helped save lives. And I think if everybody could understand and appreciate that the brain can and will adapt to everything that changes the way you feel by producing the opposite state maybe they would make better choices.
0: I think I absolutely love what you just said because you just basically said that we got to stop treating children like they can't understand this stuff and we need to help them to embrace some exciting science and to be scientists. And, you know, I think that's brilliant. I, I love it.
2: Adam and I are so passionate about education for exactly that reason. Like you said, having more information, understanding what is actually going on in the brain when you take these things or understanding what's going on in your body and your brain when you're having pain is such a powerful thing for people. So yeah.
0: We call ourselves medical providers, but we're really teachers. I mean, that's that's what we do all day. I find that it's so liberating and it gives so much power to people when you teach them about pain and you teach them about different medical conditions. You see light bulbs go on for the first time maybe in years and sometimes it's palpable the power that that has. So I really it really resonated with me when you said that about maybe that's what we need to do with these programs for kids is not dumb it down, not try to just make it in as some kind of flash in the pan threatening story meant to shock and awe, but let's tone it down. Let's be real and let's give them some some real science behind this. And then maybe they'll take us seriously. I love it.
2: We can work on building resilience with them too. You know, building resilience and grit, that's something that a lot of people have talked about so that people are more able to handle that pain that you talked about, Judy. Like it's not just physical pain, but it's emotional pain and it's pain looking at the world and trying to deal with that. If we can help people become more resilient when they're younger, you know, maybe that will help.
1: Mm -hmm. And not having to do it alone. I think that's part of the myth of grit, you know, that you just have this internal character that helps you overcome you know all obstacles when in fact a lot of what resilience has to do with is the kinds of social support that people get the mechanisms in place to help people cope not all internally and i think it's the same with adults i don't know that people understand that it's really not possible to permanently escape pain you know we can use drugs it seems i mean i'm, I'm not really telling you and your audience must know this but they work terrific for a short time, but because the brain adapts that there's diminishing returns, and I think for that reason, other strategies for coping with either physical or emotional pain or both are called for
2: yeah, you called it a substance use and abuse as a biological dead end because there will never be enough drug because the brain's capacity to learn and adapt is infinite
0: so you stated that every recovery is birthed at the bottom. And I thought that was a powerful quote. And you said it was sort of a miracle that you you didn't get what you probably deserved with all of the chances that you took and some of the decisions that you made. And you went on to say that it was in large part a visit from your father, which was pretty unexpected for a birthday, I believe. I wondered if you could explain why this visit broke the dam for you and If we have a listener out there or many listeners out there who have a loved one who's dealing with a trap of addiction and isn't sure how to engage or is maybe tempted to just walk away, I wonder if you could talk about that experience, that meeting with your your father and why that was meaningful and how that might inform somebody listening who isn't quite sure what to do with a loved one that's going through something similar. Sure. Sure. I
1: first of all can appreciate from my parents' perspective and from other people who are dealing with addicts how impossible the situation seems. I was completely belligerent. I was not interested in any help unless it was, you know, a lot of cash. I was extremely selfish and self centered with my choices. And I think part of addiction is that the last people to see that drugs are the problem are the addicts. So it's incredibly frustrating. My parents had struggled and wrestled with each other and with me sometimes for years. They had a court order that they didn't know whether to use or not. So they tried a lot of things, therapists, and I think we're kind of at the end of their rope, I guess, they were sort of tough love parents. So they didn't enable me really. And I say the thing about wads of cash, but I don't remember them ever giving me a wad of cash. So I think it was painful. And I just want to acknowledge that there's not an easy answer. I certainly don't have an easy answer. I do believe, though, that it is the connections and it is the bridges back. And even though I was so isolated by my disease, I still way, 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 way deep down loved my parents. And they way deep down loved me. My father, we talk about this sometimes because he's not really this type. And he had given up on me years earlier. My mother was a little more faithful about it. But my father, if you asked him shortly before I got clean, you know, how many children he had, he'd say he had two sons. He couldn't even mention that he had a daughter because it was just so painful. He wasn't going to acknowledge it. But for some reason, shortly before my 23rd birthday, and there was another friend involved, Marty Devereux, who I wrote the dedication to the book to. He was a long family friend, a priest, a psychologist, and just a general wise person. And I think he suggested to my father, who was maybe asking for advice, that he take me out. I don't know why my father was willing to do it, and neither does my father. We talk about it now. He doesn't remember much about this decision, but for whatever reason, I guess he had a little tiny bit of willingness. And I was, I would say, not really willing to relate to him, but willing to be taken out to dinner. And what broke through was that little bit of love deep inside both of us and me just for an instant, realizing that I was absolutely miserable and I was offered a chance to try to change and I was willing to take that chance in just the smallest way. I really didn't know what I was getting into or I never would have said yes, but I decided to give it a try. So I guess if I were giving advice, I would say there is always hope while someone is alive And it was important for me to experience the consequences of my using and, you know, the legal and financial and health consequences. But it was also really important for me to know the honest truth, which was that my family still loved me.
0: Well, Judy, I I wonder if you would close this conversation by reading a little bit of a paragraph that we mentioned on page 221, if you would.
1: Sure, I will. Though there were several turning points in my trajectory, it seems profoundly significant that the material change began a few months after the Ghost in the Mirror episode, when my father inexplicably changed course and took me out for my 23rd birthday. Federal agents, friends' deaths, expulsions and evictions, physical withdrawal, and myriad other tragedies weren't enough to propel me to change. Instead, it was human love and connection. My father's willingness to be seen with me and to treat me with kindness split open my defensive shell of rationalizations and justifications. It broke open the lonely heart that neither of us knew I still had.
0: Well, Judy Gerzel, we just thank you so much for being with us today. And uh, I feel like we should just leave it right there. And I think this conversation is going to be really a benefit to our listeners. And thank you so much for giving us some time this evening.
2: And thank you both. Yes, thank you very much. I highly recommend that everybody reads the book, Never Enough. We'll get the information into the show notes. It was fantastic. Uh, PAs, PTs, doctors, everybody should check this book out. What a phenomenal conversation with Dr. Judy Grizel, a neuroscientist who studies addiction and the brain's role in that. I think I ended the conversation with more questions than I had when I started, as so I definitely think we're going to have to have Judy back on the show at some point. Adam and I briefly discussed after we signed off the recording that if anyone else has questions for her about this opponent process or the brain's own opioid. Or anti-opioids, it would be great to collect those and possibly just throw those at her when she gets back on the show. So if anybody has a specific burning question for Dr. Grizel, just send it to us in the Facebook group or in a message or email us, and we'll make sure to jot that down and go through those when we talk to her next time. So one of the things she said that I think is very salient for all of us is that the answers are not all in the brain. We focus so much on the brain because it is a hugely important part of this pain experience, but the social situation, the psychological factors, childhood experiences, everything about our environment, our diet, our gut all these things have a lot to do with this pain experience and we can never forget about those things she also said she said she didn't know what it is about our society but that I guess it's just too painful to look at our pain and so we try to escape and sometimes we have to start by acknowledging that it is painful to live and we have to to accept that to some degree and move from there and that's part of our job is to help our patients get to that place of acceptance and understanding that acceptance is not the same thing as resignation, that acceptance is an active strategy. It's a choice. Dr. Grisel also said that the opposite of addiction is not sobriety, but choice. And I think the opposite of pain is not freedom from pain, but choice as well, choosing to live and to move forward, whether pain goes away or not. Anyway, so I hope you guys enjoyed that. If you have any questions for Judy, get them to us and we'll make sure to keep track of them and uh, run those by her next time. I hope everybody has a great day.
0: Pain Reframed is brought to you by our sponsor, the International Spine and Pain Institute. Check out their transformative pain science programming at ispinstitute.com.